Our scripture reading today comes from 1 Samuel 15. We're going to read the entire chapter. So <clears throat> we're not going to be able to today to zone in on each section as we tackle it throughout the sermon. So if you would focus in here and try to glean as much as you can from the scripture reading to prepare you for the sermon. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. So now go and attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. So Saul summoned the men and mustered them to Telam, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 from Judah. And Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. And then he said to the Kenites, go away, leave the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you along with them. For you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. So the Canaanites moved away from the Amalekites. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agag the king of the Amalekites alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely. But everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. <laughs> then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry and cried out to the Lord all that night. Then early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. But he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. And notice this, what did Saul do? And there he set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and the cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And he sent you on mission, saying, Go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why then did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought Agag their king. The soldiers, they took the sheep and the cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. I think we lost part of it. There we go. But Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much 
as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, which is witchcraft, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. And then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have violated the Lord's commands and your instructions. I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. For you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. And Samuel turned to leave, and Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today, and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one who is better than you. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a human being that he should change his mind. Saul replied, I have sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me now, so that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back with Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. Then Samuel said, bring me Agag, king of the Amalekites. And so Agag came to him in chains, and he thought, surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so will your mother be childless among women. And Samuel put Agag to death before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel left for Ramah, but Saul went up to his home in Gabeah of of Saul. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me and for me as we begin this morning? Father, help us now to understand this text. There's things in it that are difficult for us, but through your Spirit, they're not. So we ask that you would enlighten our mind and hearts, change our will, affections, and desires to want to obey you out of the grace that you've given us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. These two brothers were hard-working brothers, though they worked in different ways. One of them kept the flocks, while the other farmed the ground. And when it came time, then, to prepare their offering before the Lord, they did so, but they did so very differently. The one brother brought an offering from the harvest, while the other brother brought an offering from the firstborn of his flock. And when the Lord looked down upon both of their offerings that they gave forth as worship, he accepted the one while he completely rejected the other. Why? Because the one brother, Cain, had worshipped God wrongly, while Abel, his brother, had worshipped God rightly. Two more brothers, many years later, they were priests of God who were respected and considered to be godly spiritual leaders. In fact, they were sons of the high priest, and one of them was in line to take over for that high priest. These brothers, Nadab and Abihu, were nephews of Moses himself. They were even a part of the privileged few who were allowed to ascend partway up Mount Sinai and watch from a distance as God spoke 
with Moses. Everyone else, including the wandering animals, if they even touched the foot of the mountain, they were to be stoned or shot. And so while the Israelite nation stood back from the mountain, only seeing smoke and lightning, Nadab and Abihu were brought in close enough where they could see God. But then later on, while serving in the tabernacle, fire suddenly shot out from the presence of the Lord and consumed both of these brothers alive on the spot. And why? Because they worshipped God wrongly. Thousands of years later, we find two more people, though not brothers, but a married couple, who sold their property as an act of worship in order to give it to God for use in his church. However, after giving the money, they were suddenly struck dead on the spot and carried out and buried immediately. And why? Because they had worshipped God wrongly. They had used their worship and mixed it with deceit. They had tried to worship God and also get a claim for themselves. And so from Genesis to Revelation, we see that if we were to describe the primary conflict of the Bible, we might call it a worship war. Though not a traditional worship war as we often have seen in our churches as we war over the types of instruments, musical style, or song choices, what we find in Scripture, it's actually a war over whether or not God will be worshipped as he commands to be worshipped and as he ought to be worshipped. See, here's the thing, church. My opinions on worship don't matter. Your opinions on worship don't matter. For there is only one opinion on worship that matters, and it is the opinion of Yahweh God. Which means, even if the worship that you are engaged in makes you feel close to God, if it violates what he has commanded and, what he has, and how he has commanded us to worship, It might be worship of something, but make no mistake, it's not worship of God. For what we worship, how we worship, and why we worship are all vitally important for our worship to be true worship. We can't just label whatever we want as worship, no more than Cain could. And as we will see this morning from 1 Samuel 15, this is a lesson that Saul failed to learn, and boy, did it ever have consequences. And so too in our lives, if we fail to learn the lesson Saul failed to learn, we too will face consequences that we don't want to face, right? And so this morning, we're going to be looking at one of the great failures of King Saul, and the lesson of King Saul's failure teaches us four things about true worship, and here they are, note takers. True worship requires four things. It requires one, obedience, Two, fear. Three, love. And fourth, identity. Let's look at that first one. True worship requires right obedience. As we just read from 1 Samuel 15, God instructs King Saul to carry out something called harem against the Amalekites. Now, what is harem? All right. It is warfare of complete and total destruction. We're talking about a complete annihilation of the men, women, children, infants, cattle, property, and possessions. This is heavy stuff. That's what God commanded them to do. It was his will that it would happen. 
They weren't going outside of God's will and just doing something they ought not to have. God commanded this. He said all people and possessions were to be completely destroyed. Why? Because this people group had been marked for God's most severest judgment. And it was a long time coming for them. And because of this, it meant that this was not a war of aggression. It was not a war of self-defense. It was literally a holy war that was actually commanded by God, which served as his divine judgment on these people. And because of this, it meant that the victory belonged entirely to the Lord, which meant there would be no financial or material gain for the Israelite army. God said, destroy it all. This is my victory. None of this is for you. The spoils of war here belong entirely to me. Now, why had God commanded harem against the Amalekites? Because let's be real here. As Westerners living in 2021, we read this and we're like, that's not right. This is crazy. What is going on here? How could a good God do this? Well, us Westerners tend to forget that this good and loving God we serve is also holy. And his ways are right. And they definitely offend our sensibilities. So why did God command this? Because he's holy and this people their evil had exceeded the threshold of what he was going to allow, and so he demanded swift and severe judgment. These people were an ancient... Well, the judgment they were being judged for was an ancient evil going back, as we read in the text, to the time of Moses, when the Amalekites refused to allow the Israelites' passage through their lands that had doomed them to destruction. And think about it. What was God doing with Israel? He was using them as a light to the nations to bring the ultimate light, which is the Messiah, Jesus Christ, to the world to save the world. And Satan was working through the Amalekites to say, no, don't let them through our lands. Don't get them to the promised land. He was doing whatever he could through them to stop this from happening. The Amal- if that wasn't bad enough, the Amalekites were violent nomadic raiders. I'm not going to go into detail of how nasty their violence was, but if you want to get an idea of it, read Amos chapters 1 and 2. There's some homework for you. It included numerous atrocities like genocide. And so because of this, God ordered King Saul to wage war against them with the Israelites, and not as an act of imperialism, but as an act of divine justice. And so as we read from the text, after warning their allies, the Canaanites, that they better get out of the way, which they did, King Saul led his second largest division of soldiers into battle against the Amalekites. Let's read what it says. We'll read this again. 1 Samuel 15, 7 through 9, if you have your Bibles. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag the king of the Amalekites alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen and the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, though, they devoted to destruction. Well, good job, Saul. What a wonderful example of faithful obedience and a faithful act of worship that was pleasing and accepted before God. Right? Wrong. Why wrong? I mean, Saul was pretty close to full obedience here, wasn't he? He about did it all. You know, there's a few sheep and cattle left in the king, and they were going to kill them anyways. That's the sacrifice to God. What's the big deal here? The big deal here is because partial obedience is not obedience at all. It's before God. It's disobedience. It is disobedience to partially obey God. 
for we are to fully obey God. Now, if I'm driving down the highway, sober, with my seatbelt on, not texting while driving, but I'm going like 20 miles over the speed limit, and I get pulled over by a cop, is he going to be impressed that I was obeying most of the laws? No, he's not. And I can verify you this this past week. He's not going to be impressed. I don't want to talk about it. And the same reason I got my first ever speeding ticket, which I can no longer build a monument to myself and brag about, is the same reason that King Saul received his divine disapproval. Which is, as we already said, because of his partial obedience, which was not obedience at all, it was disobedience before God. And what is the Lord's response to King Saul's partial obedience? Well, 10 through 11 tells us. It says, The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Seems like God cares about his commandments, doesn't he? And Samuel was angry and cried to the Lord all night. The only other place in Scripture that I could find that speaks of God's regret over people's actions, you know where it's at? It's the sin of humanity that led to the flood. Which tells us something very important, church. Our disobedience absolutely grieves God. God is not indifferent towards your sin, not even in the slightest. Even as a redeemed child of God whose sin is paid for through the blood of the Lamb, he is not indifferent towards your sin. And grieving God is something we should not desire to do. It doesn't fit with worship. Those are completely juxtaposed to one another. They don't go together. They're oil and water. In fact, even as Christians, we are commanded not to do so. Look at Ephesians 4, verses 29 through 32. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander then be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. As Americans, we live in a culture of what is called cheap grace. A culture that says God doesn't care so much about that whole obedience thing, but he cares about what's in your heart. That's what matters. God doesn't care so much if you're faithful to follow his commands. You know, do your best. It's not that big of a deal. Just make sure that your heart is in the right place. So magical. That's our culture. That's how it views This cheap grace. And what does the prophet Samuel tell us about our hearts being in the right place when it comes to worshiping God? He tells us that our hearts can't be in the right place if our actions are in the wrong place. What he's telling us. And Samuel said, Has the Lord great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, it is better than sac- obedience to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen better than the fat of rams. And look what he says about disobedience. For rebellion, which is disobedience, is as the sin of divination 
or witchcraft. And presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Church, make no mistake. The standard for obedience before God is binary. Zero or one. There's no third option. You did or you didn't. And it is very strictly limited to that. And anything short of full obedience produces grief in heaven and pain on earth. It absolutely does. In fact, as the prophet Samuel points out, to deliberately disobey God through even partial obedience is as the sin of witchcraft. And to arrogantly think that we know better than God is like idolatry. We're saying, I know better than the living God, the all-knowing, all-powerful, divine God. I know more than him. And so to disobey God is to insist that we know more than him. It's to insist that we know more and our ways better. And so to follow a way other than God's, as Samuel points out, is actually to follow forces of the demonic realm, lesser gods. It's to prop ourselves up as God, though in reality we are serving the gods of, the, of hell, who are no gods at all. And so to obey God partially isn't to obey God. In fact, it is to serve Satan rather than God, which is precisely why Samuel compares it to the sin of witchcraft or divination, which ironically, as if you read all of 1 Samuel, you'll see that Saul would one day come at the end of his life to engage in that same sin, right? As he brought forth Uh, basically a witch, to call up the spirit of Samuel, who then says, why did you call me up? You'll be with me by the end of tomorrow, you and your family. And so we need, church, to think very carefully about this. We need to stop and reflect what ways are we tempted to disobey God by only obeying him in part. Our hearts deceive us. They absolutely deceive us. We think, oh, look at all these good things I've done. Surely that makes up for the disobedience over here. I'm good. So how about our time? How about our money? How about what we watch? Oh, come on, it's not that bad. There's not that much nudity or graphic violence in it. You know, it's mostly good. Make no mistake, God cares about what we think about, how we think about things. He cares about our theology. All right? Theology is deeply important to God. That's why we have a Bible full of theology. God cares about theology. And make no mistake, ignorance of theology because you have not put the time into God's word is not an excuse for partial obedience. It's still disobedience. Laziness is, does not get you off the hook. So I didn't know isn't a good excuse before God. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says the secret things belong to God. We're not responsible for those things, all right? But the things revealed, and where are they revealed? In God's word. But the things revealed belong to us and our children forever. When it comes to serving and worshiping God, partial obedience does not cut it. For partial obedience, as we've already said, is idolatrous demonic rebellion which means we must serve and worship God only how he says we should, not how we feel we should. John 4, 24 says this, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him how? In spirit and truth. 
That's doctrine. That's theology. That's to do it rightly, not what makes you feel warm fuzzies. That's not what God's after. Sure, he wants your heart into it, right? He doesn't just want outward actions, but he wants the inward heart to match the outward actions that he's commanded. Hebrews 12, 28 through 29, this is a verse our culture has just entirely ignored. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship, which implies there is such a thing as unacceptable worship. All right? And what is acceptable worship? Worshiping with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And Nadab and Abihu should come to your mind when you read these verses. For they found out how consuming that fire was through their disobedience. True worship requires obedience, but secondly, it requires proper fear. When Samuel confronts Saul for his disobedience, what does Saul do? Well, in verses 15 and 21, there's another verse in there that I just saw as we were reading it. He blames his people. He blames the soldiers. He says he went along with them because he feared of losing their approval. And in verse 17, Samuel points out to Saul just how silly this is. Why? Because it wasn't those men who put Saul into power. Who was it? It was God. God was the one who raised him up. So don't you think, Saul, that God's the one who can raise you down? Maybe you should have feared him more than you feared them. Saul feared the people more than he feared God. And it's because he didn't fear God that his fear of man came into play and led him to do what was wrong. So let me ask you, what causes a church then to water down its doctrine, to ignore what the Bible says because it's not popular in the culture, what causes them to do that? Fear of man. What if people stop coming? What if they stop giving? What if they stop wanting? What if our church shrinks and dies? We got to, we got to get rid of this. This isn't popular. It's fear of man. When the reality is God has established his church and the gates of hell will not overthrow it. And so a church that is not being obedient fully is being disobedient, Right? And so how dare they ask for God's blessing when they are trying to shy away from obedience because it's not popular? What often causes us as Christians to obey God partly and not fully? It's lack of a proper fear of God. Or as we might put it, because this fear thing, this is what we're talking about. We're not talking about a scared hide underneath our beds. It's a reverence and respect for God is what fear of God is. Fear of man and a lacking fear of God leads us to chicken out and not rebuke one another, to not live in community and actually engage one another and help build up and edify each other. Because, you know, I can't say anything to them. What if they get mad at me? They might not talk to me anymore. Fear of man or lacking fear of God leads us to follow the cultural zeitgeist, the cultural mood culture's morality. It leads us to believe wrongly. It leads us to worship God wrongly, to serve God wrongly. And ultimately, fear of man and not having fear of God leads to, as it did for King Saul, spiritual failure. So what is the solution for us? It's the same solution that King Saul needed, but did not find. Remember who God is and remember who man is. 
That's what Saul reminds him of. He says, wasn't it God who raised you up? It wasn't these guys. We need to remember this, who God is and who we are. Does man give your lungs breath? No, God does. Does man determine the course and fate of your life? No, God does. So why on earth would we live our lives fueled by a fear of man when it should be properly fueled by a reverent, respectful fear of God? As we just read, we are to worship God with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. If we look at what passes in our culture for reverent worship, is this not a testimony to God's mercy and grace that more of us do not meet the same fate as Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu? For what often passes as worship today is not actually worship at all. Not worship of God, but the worship of the feeling of worship, which is actually to worship self. You thought about that? That's what it is. If you are simply worshiping the feelings you get out of worship, and that's what's driving your worship, okay? that's idolatry, as Samuel rightly calls it. Because we worship God how? Not emotionally, not with emotionally driven sentimentality, but we worship God in truth. And so, we ought to pick our songs for worship carefully in order to make sure that we are not offering to God fruits and vegetables when he's demanded the firstborn of the flock. Because we worship God in reverence and awe, we approach worship before him not as a concert that we finally craft to entertain us, to amuse us, or emotionally manipulate us. That's not what we do with our worship. Instead, what does God command us to worship and how to worship? We approach worship with the goal of seeing even the tiniest glimpse of God's glory, which alone will change not our emotions only, like we can so easily manipulate crowds to do, but it will change our affections, which will lead us to cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, for the whole earth is full of his glory. Or after seeing the glory of God and praising Him for who He is in worship. That's the goal. And when your affections are changed, not your emotions, surely your emotions will follow suit, but when your affections are changed by the glory of the living God, you not only properly fear Him, but you properly love Him. For you are seeing who He truly is. And and when you see who God truly is, you see His immense value and worth which leads to a great love for him, which leads us to our third point. True worship requires obedience. It requires fear, but it also requires love. Why did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? You see that Saul's obedience, even the partial obedience, was fueled by a self-serving motive. He pursued financial and material gain and did so under the guise or the banner of serving God, which in fact was not serving the one true God, but Saul's God, which was ultimately himself. Now, thankfully, we don't have anyone in our culture today who does this. This was only a thing that was done back in Saul's day. There's nobody out there with slick, 
teeth white and smiles telling you that if you give money to their ministry, God will give you tenfold. There's none of that, thankfully. There's no one telling you that if you just have more faith, all right, and let go and let God, he'll give you more blessings and more material things, that you can live your best life now. I'm shocked, too, because with all the scams we find out there, you'd think at least one person would have come up with this. Goodbye, Joel. Well, it's easy to pick on prosperity gospels, preachers. It is. Don't we often find ourselves loving the gifts instead of the giver? We do. But when we love God for what he gives instead of loving God for who he is, we are not worshipers of God. We are worshipers of things made by God, which makes us idolaters. And until we begin to see the absolute beauty of God, the absolute glory, supreme, incomparable worth of God, the majesty of God, our hearts, like King Saul's, will constantly pounce onto things of this world. Yes, we must worship God by obeying Him fully. Yes, we must worship God by fearing Him rightly but without a love for God that is rooted in the affections of our heart. Our worship is nothing but an attempt at cosmic manipulation. We're trying to get God on our side to get him to actually serve and bless us. That's what the prosperity gospel preachers are all, are all after. That's the, that's the heart of their message. And until that changes, my identity, which is we, you know, my identity, that's, that's what I value. That's how, that's how I make myself feel like I have value and worth, okay? My identity is tied to what? My achievements, the things that I accomplish, all right? Whether those are moral, religious, or otherwise. True worship requires obedience. It requires fear. It requires love. And fourthly, it requires proper identity, the trajectory of King Saul's life is a fascinating one to read. I encourage you to read 1 Samuel. And in 1 Samuel 10, we find King Saul's ceremony where they go to make him king in front of the big crowd and nobody can find him. Why? Because this tall, lanky, shy kid is hiding in the luggage. Like They got all the luggage and stuff over there and he's hiding in it because he's shy. And so this humble and shy kid then gets appointed as king. But before we know it, in verse 12... We read, we read, what do we read? We read of how the shy and humble kid wasn't so shy and humble anymore. He started off that way, but boy, did he move away from that. For as verse 12 tells us, what does God do after he defeats the Amalekites? He goes to Carmel and does what? Creates a monument to bring glory to himself. Not to God. That's what he ought to have done. This was God's victory, not his. God just used him. And he didn't need to use him. God could have sent, a, as he did with a worldwide flood, he could have sent anything he wanted to wipe these people out. He could have sent fire, rain, hail, whatever. He could have just killed them on the spot by making their hearts just stop. And so though Saul started out really good, which he absolutely did, read, read in 1 Samuel some of the great things that he did. He got rid of all the witchcraft and junk going on div divination. Ultimately, though, Saul went really, really wrong. How, though? I'll tell you how. 
It's the same how for how we all go wrong. Look at verse 17. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, and you could put in there hiding amongst the luggage, being all shy and stuff, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. Saul went wrong because, and listen to this, Saul went wrong because he forgot that his identity was received, not achieved. See how importantly different those two things are? And if you zoned out, zone back in for this, because you don't want to miss this. What made Saul the king? As we said, it wasn't Saul, it wasn't the people, it was God who did this. By his grace, he made Saul king. And so why is King Saul setting up a monument to the person who didn't make him king? Why isn't he setting up one to God? Why does Saul keep King Agag as a prisoner? Why does Saul keep the plunder? The answer is this. Saul is trying to ground his identity, his self-worth, and his value in his achievements, not in God. That's what he's doing. Saul keeps King Agag alive because it's a trophy, a monument, if you would, to his greatness as the king who conquers other kings. Saul keeps the plunder because it pleases his people and their cheers build a monument in his heart to his greatness as king. Saul sets up the monument literally to himself because it's a monument that reminds him of his greatness as a conquering and great king who is no longer the tall, shy, skinny boy hiding amongst the luggage. He's a king, a mighty king. Just look at the monument I have up here for myself. That that should tell you how great I am. I'm a conquering king. And why does Saul do all this? These are the kind of questions you need to ask when you're reading through narrative. Why did Saul do this? And how is the reason that Saul did this similar to the reasons I do this? Why did he do this? He did this because he had forgotten that his identity, his value, or his worth, we might say, is not tied to his achievements before God, but God's achievements. That's called grace. That's where he should have founded his identity. Not in these things. And so some of you are here today, and you're no different than King Saul in this regards. For you are using the accomplishments of your life as monuments to convince yourself of your self-worth. Maybe you're a mom. It's Mother's Day. We'll pick on you a little bit. Maybe you're a mom who looks at the monuments your children have made to ground your identity and self-worth. Because little Johnny's an honor student, you too has honor, right? You've got honor as a parent because you're Johnny's parent. You helped make this happen. Look, monument. There's a million different ways that we do this. For some of you, it's your successful career that you've propped up as a monument to your self-worth. Look how successful I am. Let me tell you about it. Check out my nice house, nice car, my nice boat, whatever. You know, those, those aren't bad things, but they become monuments, don't they? For some of you, it's religion. How's that work? Well, it works like this. If we aren't careful, we can use even our religiosity as a monument to our self-worth. Just look at how much I know about the Bible compared to everyone else. In fact, most of the people I know don't even want to read or discuss their Bible. I do. Monument. That's what we do. Look how faithfully I serve in the church. I read my Bible, I pray, and I do more around here than most. It's a monument. 
to our self-worth. And if we aren't careful, church, we can take these good things, because they're not bad in of themselves. What is evil? Evil is twisting good things into ultimate things to serve us in an idolatrous way, to build monuments that remind us of our value and worth. And you know what? As long as we are trying to become big in our own eyes, to borrow Samuel's language, not only will we be unable to worship God properly, but as King Saul vividly shows us through his life's failures, we will be unable to admit our flaws. We will be unable to see our hearts fully healed from our perpetual monument-making obsession. We're not going to be able to do it. We're going to keep just being monument builders. Because Saul needed to believe he was a great king, he needed to know that he had value and worth, that he mattered, because he was a mighty warrior, he became blinded to his own failures. He couldn't see them. Instead of giving God all the honor and glory for the victory, Saul needed everyone to know how great he was. He wasn't a chump. I think of Rocky. He says, what, you know, in the movie Rocky, he says, why do I got to win? So people will know I'm not a bum. That's what, it's monument building. That's what we all do. And that's what Saul did. Instead of killing Agag as God commanded, Saul keeps him as a reminder of his greatness. And then when the prophet Samuel finally confronts him, you know, it's funny because Samuel comes and Saul is a boom. On, he's Johnny on the spot. Look what I did. I did what was right. And deep down, his heart's like, no, you didn't. He's like, and he's like, no, I did, I did, I did. And Samuel is not impressed. All right? And so when the prophet Samuel confronts him, instead of admitting his failure, look what he does. It's so insidious how blinded his heart is to the truth. He blame shifts the people for it. Just like what happened in the garden with Adam and Eve. Adam says, God, it was this woman you gave me. It's your fault and kind of hers. That's what he did. He blame shifted. Oh, no, it's not me. This isn't the fault of, of the great King Saul. I'm much too great. He could admit it. So he blamed the people. And so do you see the blindness that idolatry brings? We can see it, but we can't see it. It's right in front of us, staring us in the face. And everyone else is like, how do they not see this? What is wrong with them? They're, you know. And for us, it's because we've suppressed it. We can't see it because to see it would tear down a monument in our life that we've constructed to help us feel and, and ground our value and self-worth. It grounds our identity. And so then, finally, after Saul continues to hold his feet to the fire, we see King Saul confesses his sin. But make no mistake, this was not a real confession of sin. This is false sorrow. All right? Because Saul isn't sorry for his sinful actions against the holy God. Saul is sorry because of the consequences of his actions against the holy God, which really have a negative effect upon his true God, which was himself. Which is why Saul, what does he do then? When Samuel you know, confronts him and rebukes him, he begs Saul to go with him before the people to worship the Lord. Not because he's truly sorry, and if you read, as you notice in the text there, it was to save face before the elders and the people of Israel by having God's prophet come with him and worship him before God, which would signify he's still the guy, right? He still got God's favor, even though Samuel had just told him one-on-one, no, you don't, you're going to be removed, okay? And so in his apology, he's still trying to show remorse and repentance in a way that still builds monuments to Saul. 
And we can absolutely do this too, and we do all the time. At first, when Saul asks Samuel to go with him to worship the Lord, he says no. And then when Samuel begins to walk away, if you notice in the text, what does Saul do? Reaches out and grabs onto his priestly garment, and it tears. And there's really two really very interesting symbolisms happening here. One, the tassels around the garment, those were put there for a specific reason. Right where it tore, what were those tassels? Symbols of the importance of God's law and being faithful to follow it. And secondly, the garment itself, as Samuel points out, being torn is a picture of the judgment that Samuel pronounced upon King Saul, which was this, his kingdom would be torn from him and given to another. And why? Because Saul rejected God's word. And he failed to properly worship God through obedience, fear, love, and identity that was received by the grace of God. For when God's grace is your identity and not these monuments, these silly little monuments you've been propping up in your life, okay, you don't need to build monuments to your self-worth. If God's grace is how you know you are great and have value and honor, not because of your greatness, but because of his greatness, then you don't need to go around trying to tell everyone how much of a pretty little girl you are doesn't matter. You don't care about that anymore because your beauty and worth are grounded in God's beauty and worth, which are absolutely supreme. Which means that when somebody comes along and points out one of the thousands of ways which you actually aren't so great, if, you, if, if your identity is grounded in the love of God and the nature of God, you know what happens? You don't freak out when they poke at you a little bit and say, hey, this monument here, I think you don't see it. I think you're blinded to it. Let me show you this. You don't freak out because that's not the center of your identity. It's not the center of your self-worth, for your self-worth is firmly rooted in God's love for you. And so when somebody comes along, tears down a little bit monument, you're like, hey, thanks. You know, you don't freak out about it. Who cares? It has nothing to do with my value and self-worth anymore. In Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 through 8, God tells the Israelites why he loves them. And I've shared this before, but we're probably going to have it all the time because it's just awesome. He says this, I didn't love you because you, Israel, were more numerous than the other nations. In fact, you were of the smallest. I didn't love you because you were mightier or stronger. I loved you because I love you. The circular argument. There's no reason attached. See, if I go to my wife and I say, honey, you know why? She says, why do you love me? And I say, here's why I love you. Because you're pretty. Because you take care of us and the kids. And I insert all these things. At first, she might be like, oh, that's great. But then she'll be like, hey, wait a minute. What if I lose those things? What happens when I get old and wrinkly and stuff and I'm not as pretty as I am now, according to the world standards? Here we go. Um, what happens then? Well, then the concern is I might lose that love, but not with God. The love we have from God is he loves you because he loves you, which means nothing can take it away. Absolutely nothing. God doesn't love us because of the monuments we've built. So quit trying to build monuments to him. For if he did, then yeah, absolutely it makes sense to go bananas when somebody else comes along and rebukes us and points out the not-so-great things about us that, that affect our monuments that we've built. But if God loves us because of sovereign grace, and he does, then nothing can touch it. It doesn't matter how spiritually short you are. 
It doesn't matter how spiritually weak you are or how timid you are. The only thing that matters is this. God loves us because he loves us. Now, unlike King Saul, today here we know the ultimate proof of this love. We know the ultimate basis for this loving, sovereign grace. And what is it? The cross of Christ. That is it. We can see clearly what Saul only saw dimly. Christ Jesus was strong, but he became weak for the weak to make them strong. Christ Jesus was rich, but he lost everything and became poor to make the poor rich. He was life itself, but Christ willingly laid down his life for us so that we might live. He was a king, yet he set aside his crown so that even the weakest and most pathetic, tall, skinny, shy Christian can become a king or queen before God. And so, yes, proper worship absolutely requires proper obedience, proper fear, and proper love. But it always requires taking that love into the depths of our soul and realizing that in Christ, we are kings and queens before God. Think of the most grand ceremony you've ever seen of, the, of, of a king stepping into power. That ain't got nothing on what's coming for us as kings and queens of God. In fact, we are sons and daughters of the living God. And nothing can take that away from us. Because we were given that not because of any monument we built. We were given it by grace. And another thing, never forget this. It is not because of our perfect obedience, our perfect fear, or our perfect love that we have God's love, but because of Christ's perfect love, obedience, and fear, which is the ultimate grounds of our completely, 100% entirely accepted identity before God. Amen indeed. When the good news of the gospel truly sinks down into your heart, you can handle any bad news somebody might bring to you about yourself. You're not worried about it. They tell you, hey, you know what? You're kind of a jerk for Jesus. Hey, you know what? You actually kind of smell spiritually in these areas. We don't have a big problem about it. It's like, oh, thank you. How can I fix this? Right? Because that's not the source of our value and worth. For our value and worth lies hidden in Christ. That's where it's at. Now, we've got like one minute left, and I should probably end the sermon here because we're out of time and we're out of points. But I can't yet because I've had four weeks off, and there's one more point. You should have expected this to be fair. True worship requires right obedience, right fear, right love, right identity, and fifthly, bonus one, right community. We're just going to talk about this for a second. If you want to actually come to the point where you give up on this foolish, monument-building, self-worth, creating identity stuff, you absolutely cannot do this apart from a community of faith. Some of you are what we might call non-committal. For you, accountability is a four-letter word. Because you're the kind of person who likes to drop in on church, maybe hang on the outskirts, you know, absorb and take in and be blessed by the sermon and the service, but you don't want to give the effort to step out boldly and develop 
deep relationships with God's people. You keep everyone at arm's length and you only occasionally bring people in when you feel like it. It's all on your terms, which means that nobody ever has room or grounds to come in and point out the areas that you are blinded by your sin where you're setting up monuments again. You don't have that, so you're lone wolfing it. But do you know what? If you do this, you're dead meat. Just like Saul was dead meat. You're not going to be able to come to overcoming this monument-building stuff. Why? Because like King Saul, if you continue living this way, you're going to be blinded by what everybody else can see, but what you cannot see. And so what you absolutely need, and the Scripture is clear on this, you need to be living in community, in a a group of accountability, where brothers and sisters in Christ come together, and we've asked each other to be open and honest with each other's faults, to point out, hey, I think you're building a monument here. Did you see that one, maybe? Right? We need that. As we mentioned a few weeks ago, you need to be a Nathan and find somebody and find some other Nathans in your life to help. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, well, community, don't skip church. One last thing about this community thing. If you come in here and you try to live in an open and honest community, the stuff we're talking about, without your identity being in Christ and in the gospel, maybe you're still have your identity in your obedience, in your fear, in your great love, and all these other things, but it's not grounded in the gospel, you're going to be the biggest pain on the planet to deal with in church. All right? You'll be a jerk for Jesus. That's what's going to happen. And Because what's going to happen is when somebody criticizes you or rebukes you for a monument you've built, you're going to freak out. You're going to have a panic attack about it. Because for you, that's your identity. And so for this to work, you absolutely have to have your identity grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And only when it is can you then have the courage to obey God and step out of your comfort zone and plunge yourself into a local body of believers that have covenanted together to do life and ministry. Or we might add to that to ripping down monuments in each other's lives. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25 says this, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, that's a command, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, all the more so as you see the day drawing near. This verse isn't just saying, don't skip church. This, and that's certainly part of it. It is a command. But this verse is, is absolutely saying, just as important as it is to come together and actually meet as a body, so much more so is it to come together and actually meet as community, right? To covenant together, to do this monument-tearing-down thing. It's absolutely vital, and it's absolutely commanded. And as we already discussed, discussed, to partially obey God is not actual obedience but disobedience. So not only is it going to hurt us, but it's going to be disobedience before God. So, join a body of believers. If not this one, please go and find one. A gospel-preaching, Bible-preaching church where you can join that church as a member of the community so that you can, by the grace of God, become more grounded in Jesus Christ, who is the true source of your ultimate worth, 
your ultimate value, and your identity. And as that happens, I can tell you one thing that will for sure happen. Your worship will grow deeper and truer than you ever even thought was possible. Father, I thank you for this text. I thank you that you record even the failures of people like King Saul in God's word for our good and your glory. Father, we pray now that if there's anyone here who's still struggling to ground their identity in Christ, maybe they've never done that at all. Father, I pray that they would just give up on monument building, that they would see that Jesus Christ and the life he lived and died and how he rose again is the only monument we need to ground our value and self-worth before you. And that comes to us freely by grace through faith as we turn from the monuments we build, the idols we've set up, to Christ to be our Savior, to give us his righteousness, which is imparted to us by grace. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Just stand with us as we sing our closing song this morning.